It is good to see you all here today. If you would open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We will soon be reading in verses 43 through the end of the chapter, verse 54. Who among us likes to be duped? And who likes to have and be taken advantage of? Whether it's just a humiliating prank or it costs us much, much more, my guess is none of us likes to be made fools of or perhaps what's worse, cheated. In the summer of 2000, Enron stocks were close to $91 a share, and by November the following year, those shares would be worth less than a dollar apiece. Through shifty accounting tactics, false reporting, destruction of documents, and flat-out lying, executives at Enron fooled not only the Security and Exchange Commissions, but a huge number of their own employees, who many of whom lost all of their stock options as Enron's stocks plummeted. In the span of one year, many of these would lose all of their savings, all of their retirement, and all of their nest egg. They were foolish, yes. They were probably even greedy in some cases. And they, because of this, bear a certain amount of guilt, but not all of it. And even if they do bear some of that guilt, much of their foolishness was brought about because of the deception and the greed embodied by the executives at Enron. Such actions cost more than just a bit of humiliation, but they ravage many people's hope and security in the future. What's the greatest threat to your security and hope this morning? Is it big business like Enron? Is it the government? Is it those who don't like your politics? Perhaps physical threats from thugs or radicals. Well, what if the greatest threat to you being duped, the, the greatest threat to your security, did not come from outside of you, but rather from your own heart? How many of us can stand or sit here today knowing the true purity of our own hearts? How many of us know that our motives are right in everything that we do? How many of us can be assured that we are not deceived by our own hearts and the wickedness that lies therein? Jeremiah 17, 9 through 10 says that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. The Bible seems to indicate very clearly that our hearts are deceptive in their wickedness. They fool us. Only God truly knows our hearts. How are we supposed to guard against this? How do we guard ourselves against deception? And given what Jeremiah says, can we even guard ourselves against it? Whether that deception comes from outside or whether it comes from inside our own heart, what practical assurance can we have that we will not be led astray? And what's more, what should we be concerned of being led astray from? What is the most important thing to hold on to? Is it life and liberty? Is it health and wealth? Scripture, I think, indicates that Jesus is the greatest thing to hold on to. He is worth every ounce of your devotion and every breath of your life. He is due all honor and glory. So in today, in John 4, we're going to think through the deception of the heart and we're going to think through how we might honor Jesus with our whole lives so that we are not deceived by ourselves. Let us begin reading in John 4, 43. After the two days, he departed for Galilee. 
For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. So he came again to Cana, Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man had heard that Jesus came from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. The official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. Now this was the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is the word of our God. First, as we think through what it means for us to not be deceived and for us to give honor to Jesus in all that we do, I would ask you to crush your confidence. Crush, destroy, eliminate any confidence you might have in yourselves, friends. In verse 43 of our passage, we learn that there's two days that have passed since he met with the Sumerians and now he was going again back up into Galilee. This was to resume the trip that he started at the beginning of chapter 4. But after this particular verse, in verse 44, we have a very odd statement by Jesus that needs some explanation. And Jesus says here, simply, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. It's not clear precisely what the hometown is to which John and Jesus both refer. Furthermore, the fact that it says, for Jesus himself testified, means that this lack of honor was what pushed him forward to go into Galilee. So he leaves because, he leaves Samaria because he has no honor in his own hometown. What are we to make of this? Why would Jesus purposely go, apparently, where he has no honor? Many solutions to this have been proffered. The best known is likely a solution that, that indicates that he went to Nazareth, Nazareth before he went off to Cana. He moved from Cana from Nazareth because of the lack of faith and respect of the people in his own hometown. After all, it's quite possible that the people of Nazareth, having watched Jesus grow up, seen him as a young man, knowing that he was a carpenter's son, would have naturally had less respect for him than people who had just met him and heard his teaching for the first time. Familiarity does breed a good deal of contempt. The problem is, of course, that John has no mentioning of Nazareth anywhere around here. It seems the best explanation for this sort of hometown remark, one that is supported by D.A. Carson, is to think that his hometown was actually the entire region of Galilee, and what's more, the region of Judea. In other words, he leaves Samaria, which is not his hometown, which is not his country, to go into Galilee, which is his country, which is his hometown. We would do better to consider and I think accept the translation of the CSB 17, which says that Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country, not hometown. 
He's not talking about Nazareth because Nazareth isn't mentioned. He's talking about the place where Jews live. The problem with this particular solution, though, is that it seems contradicted by the very next statement in verse 45, where we're told the Galileans welcomed him is not welcoming a form of honor. If I welcome you into my house, it's certainly a sign that I am honoring you of some sort. The ending of verse 45, though, hints that John is being subtle with what he's saying in these verses. Notice that John mentions that they had gone to the feast in Jerusalem and that they had seen all that Jesus had done in Jerusalem. The Galileans welcomed him, John writes, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, where they too had gone to the feast. You might remember, this not only sounds similar, but when it says, for they too had gone to the feast, it brings our attention back to something that had happened two chapters before, where at the end of chapter two, we read this. Now when he, that is Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. It sounds exactly like what John says about the Galileans. They saw the signs that he was doing when he was there, for they too went up to the feast, just like the people that I wrote about in chapter two. But those people in chapter 2, John writes this about. Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in men. These people from Galilee had likewise seen the signs that Jesus had been doing in Jerusalem. So it's likely that they suffered under the same delusion and the same deception that those mentioned in chapter 2 did. Namely, that they harbored some sort of belief in Jesus. But Jesus himself did not entrust himself to them. So when we read that they welcomed him, we are to understand that with not a fair bit of irony. They think they're welcoming and honoring him, but Jesus knows better. He knows that their welcome is not true and from the heart. Rather, their welcome is a false facade. It's a fraud. It is a deception. So strong their deception, they might have even truly deceived themselves. The heart is, of course, wicked above all things. But Jesus, like the Lord, because he is the Lord, does not need anyone to tell him. He knows what the heart of man is. The beginning of verse 45 helps to cement this as well. We read several indications that we are to see this as the culmination of his trip from Cana to Jerusalem and then back up to Cana. In verse 46, we read, so he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. This is what scholars call an inclusio. And it means that you're enveloping. All of this is one major story. So we are to read all of the material in between here all the way back into chapter 2 as one major story, a cohesive story with many different parts. John is trying to tell us that we should read all of these passages together. So it appears as though the Galileans welcomed him not because they wanted, not because they wanted to honor him, but rather because they wanted more fireworks. They wanted more signs. They wanted more wonders. They wanted more miracles. What would we get then if we went back and we read chapters 3 and 4 with this in mind? In the beginning of chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Christ in the assurance of his own ability to decipher the nature of Christ. There he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher. We know that you are a teacher come from God. For no one can do these signs unless God is with him. Nicodemus thinks he knows Christ, at least where Jesus hails from, because, Jesus, um, because of the signs and the wonders that Jesus does. But Jesus says to him that he can't understand anything that he is claiming to understand unless he's born again. What's more, not just in verse 3, but in verse 5 of the third chapter, Nicodemus cannot see the kingdom of God unless he's born of the Spirit and water. 
In other words, Nicodemus is deceived by the things that he sees with his eyes. He is confident in what he has seen at the feast and his ability to rightly interpret those things and thinks that he already knows. So he has a hard time taking in and believing what Jesus says. By the end of their conversation, he leaves frustrated, flustered, and confused. Even John the Baptist's disciples at the end of chapter three seem confident in their master, so confident that they don't understand why Jesus is growing in popularity while John is diminishing in popularity. In doing so, they overlook his own statements about his limitation in God's scheme of salvation. They overlook the central point of his ministry precisely because they are overconfident in him. The Samaritans, on the other hand, don't have a hard time taking in what Jesus is telling them. We have no miracles done like what was done in Jerusalem for Nicodemus to see. All we have is Jesus speaking to a woman at a well, her speaking to the people in the town, and then Jesus speaking to the people in the town. Everything in this passage points at the true and abiding faith of the Samaritans. The ending of the Samaritan passage further indicates that they this to be true, they rightly confess him to be the savior of the world. The Samaritans, unlike the Galileans, unlike the Nicodemus and the rest of the people in Jerusalem, get no fireworks, they get no miracles, they get no signs, no wonders. They get very simply the words of Jesus Christ. In the first case, confidence was nothing less than deception. Nicodemus didn't know what he should have known. So how could he understand what was beyond him Jesus says to him in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you don't understand these things? And again in verse 12, if I have told you of earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Nicodemus' confidence in what he can see with his eyes and his confidence in what he himself knew would not allow him to take in the very things Jesus was longing to tell him. His heart was full of itself and it had no other room. The Galileans want a miracle worker, perhaps loving the spectacle of Jesus' magic, or even thinking how nice it might be to have a powerful weapon like Jesus to fight. They are also confident. Confident they can master Jesus. Confident they can need nothing more from him than nice words, a healing or two, and maybe a show. In the second case, honest questions and close listening brought faith not only to the woman at the well, but the entire town of Sychar. The Samaritans desired to listen to him, to hear afresh the words of this living Messiah. And because of that, it brought faith, belief, and conviction outside of any miracles, any signs wrought in their presence. Friends, do you let Jesus speak to you in his word? Or do you just read it to hear what you want it to say? Do you easily brush over well-known passages assured in your own heart that they have nothing new to tell you? Ask yourself, Honestly, if you find scripture reading boring, why is that so? Isn't it because you think that scripture, or at least parts of it, have nothing new for you? We're easily bored with what we easily master. Is this where you are? Are you a master of scripture? Sure in all of your doctrine and confident in all of your ways? Do you read scripture with an open mind or with such confidence in your own knowledge of the truth that you deceive yourself? Do you even read it? Are you so confident in your own ability to ascertain the truth and direct your life that you feel like you don't need it? 
What other reason is there for not opening the word of God other than thinking you don't need it? Thirsty people drink water. Hungry people find food. People who need direction and salvation from God go to the scriptures. Friends, put an end to your confidence. Crush it. Humble yourselves and let the word of God speak to you. Let it guide you and direct your faith. Secondly, then, if we are to honor Jesus rightly and not just be deceived by our own hearts, we must count on Jesus' words. We must count on his words. Friend, you can trust them. You can count on them in your darkest day and during the brightest time of your life. Jesus' words are wise and true, or his name is faithful and true. While the Galileans were paying lip service to Christ in their welcome, a man appears who is in quite a desperate spot. His son is ill and gravely ill and on his deathbed. Apparently, he has seen or he has been told of the miracles that Jesus has done. And so he has come and appealed to Jesus for help. His son was ill and he has no other recourse. And so he asked Jesus to make the trip to Capernaum so he might heal his son. It's not a small request, but it is indeed an earnest one. Jesus offers the man a rebuke. Unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Why does Jesus speak this way? This man has traveled from afar, knowing the power of Jesus. And he's come to him and said, my son is ill. And Jesus says, you have no faith. Unless you see signs and wonders, you wouldn't believe. Why does Jesus speak this way? First, let's be very clear. The you here is meant to be plural. That is something that is obscured by the ESV and almost no other translations. It's very odd that the ESV does this. So the rebuke is not addressed directly to the man alone. It is for the entire crowd that has gathered. And if we take seriously the idea that Jesus' reception at the hands of the Galileans was self-serving and skin deep, we have here further proof that Jesus refuses to entrust himself to them he flat out doesn't believe the people who surround him and their welcome and their declarations of joy in his presence are nothing but fakes. They won't believe what he says unless they can see more signs. His words are not enough. His command is not good enough. And his declarations must be accompanied by more proof. Unless they see, they will never believe. But secondly, it is clearly a challenge to this man who has come to ask help for his family. Jesus has absolutely no intention of going to Capernaum. At no point in time did that enter into the litany of things that Jesus was going to do during this time of his life. He will not travel there to heal the man's child so that this man's belief can be held in check until Jesus does it. Rather, the statement pushes the man to truly believe. How will he respond? He responds the best way he can. Sir, come down before my child dies. He, he, he doesn't back away from Jesus but clings to him all the more. But Jesus pushes him again this time forcing him to accept his statement without proof of sight, without seeing the miracle done, with no evidence given to him. He simply says, go, turn around and leave. Your son is well. What could the man do? Was he gonna sit there and plead with Jesus to come? Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know you said that. I know you said it. But honestly, let's get over that. Why don't you come with me? Heal my son, everything will be fine. He has come to Jesus because he purported, he, he declared that Jesus was able to heal him. Pleading with Jesus to come now after Jesus has said he's already well 
would just be denying the very faith that he said that he had. Jesus had just said the boy was healed. Not believing that statement is not believing that Jesus could do what he said. Or rather, instead of pleading with him, would he just walk away, not believing that Jesus was able to do the very thing that he came to Jesus to do? He, the whole reason he made the trip was so that Jesus would heal his son. No, neither of these options will do. The man does the only reasonable thing. He simply trusts in Jesus' word. He trusts that Jesus spoke the truth to him. He trusts that Jesus is able to heal his son, whether in his presence or at a distance. This quite clearly is not what this man wanted. He wanted an easier route, a miracle at close range, withholding true faith until the deed is done. It's very easy to ask Jesus to come and to heal his son and believe only after Jesus actually heals him that he could have healed him. There's no harm and no foul in just asking him to go. But Jesus brilliantly pushes the man to believe what he has reported. The rest of the crowd could continue to give Jesus lip service. They could welcome him and utter their own weak need faith in his words, but this man could not do that. Either he would turn and leave believing in the very thing that he had already confessed to believe in, or he would stay and struggle with Jesus, his actions denying his apparent trust in the miracle-working power of our Lord. The man chooses wisely to believe the word of Jesus. John writes simply, he believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. Friends, we are to be no different than this man. Reports came to him, or maybe he even had eyes to see the works that Jesus had done in Jerusalem. He then came to him for help. Jesus gave him his word and he believed. And we too have had reported to us the very great works of Jesus Christ. He was mighty, who has done great things. He has purchased our salvation. He has removed our guilt. He has cleansed our sin. He has made us new again. Our sins are as far as the east is from the west. Jesus has proven this to us by rising from the dead. We have heard these reports. Many of us sit here today claiming that we believe in them, but I tell you, there are many in many places who sit here today claiming that they believe in them, but they don't believe in them, and they won't believe in them unless Jesus continues to perform signs and wonders in their presence. Many won't entrust themselves to his word unless he proves himself again and again and again. Their faith is nothing more than the faith of the Galileans, skin deep and self-serving. Why ask for more signs? Why wait for more wonders? Was the resurrection of our Lord not enough for you to do the things that he claims that you ought to do? No, indeed, for some it is not enough. Not because they don't have proof, but because they don't believe Jesus' words. Luke 16 records the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man had all you could ever possibly want, and he demonstrated it with daily lavish feasts. This wasn't like Christmas time lavish feasts like my family enjoys. He did nothing but eat like that all year round. You could think of what that would do to somebody, right? That's all he did is have lavish feasts daily and daily and daily while Lazarus, poor and sick and ill, only wanted to eat the scraps and the things that were thrown off of that table and he fought with the dogs to get them. They both die and Lazarus finds himself in paradise with Abraham. The rich man is in hell. When the rich man finds out that his anguish won't be relieved, he asks, Abraham to send Lazarus back to his brothers 
so that the fate that awaits them in hell might be avoided? Abraham responds in Luke 16, 29. Your brothers have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes back to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, they won't be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Friends, if you are unwilling, if people in the world are unwilling to listen to God's word as it has come to you, even having someone resurrected from the dead will not convince you. Jesus could stand here in your full presence and you would still ask for signs and wonders to be done. This man, in our passage, was weak and desperate and he turned to Christ for aid and comfort. He turned to Christ because he believed and he left not to turn away from Christ, but to do what Christ commanded him. Friend, if you have come desperate to Christ, then listen to his word. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verses 39 through 40, Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. Those of true faith long for the precepts of God. They long for the words of Jesus, for they are life. To say that you believe and then to not seek out the words of Christ, or worse, when given them, not to put them into practice, demonstrates a welcoming of Jesus that does not accord with salvation. Early in chapter 4, when Jesus was asked to eat, he watched the Samaritan woman leaving the well, and he claimed that he had food that his disciples didn't know of. Listen, God gives good things to his people through his word. He gives nourishment and comfort to you. But these comforts are available to those who do the word, who believe in it well enough to put it into practice. Jesus said, I have food that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. Notice what the nourishment comes from and the comfort from food comes from not hearing the word, not knowing God's will, but Jesus says, doing the will. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Friend, you can't live on miracles alone, not even if those miracles are multiplied bread and manna from heaven. You must live on the words of God. Count on Jesus' words, friends, for they are your life. And lastly, if we are to be those who rightly honor Jesus, we must be those who conquer our trials. Conquer our trials. Make no mistake, the life that we are called to live is not an amusement park where the downs are exhilarating and the ups are filled with hope. The valleys that you face will be real, they will be deep, and they will be terrifying. David rightly calls his own trials and difficulties a valley of death. And so they are. But be rest assured, friends. Christ still reigns over the events of your life. He is still sovereign over all of creation so that through faith in him you might conquer for he himself has conquered. There's a bit of a mystery in this particular little passage. Christ leaves the Samaritans where by far his greatest success, as a matter of fact, in the rest of the book, his greatest success is already past him in terms of people following him in the world. He's going to not gain disciples from this point on out, but shed them. The Samaritans came to him, heard from him, rightly confessed him, demonstrated great faith in him, all without the influence of those pesky signs and wonders. Yet he leaves that field. He goes to locations where Jesus himself admits he will have no honor. 
Why does Jesus do this? And it's clear from our passage that Jesus does this purposefully. He leaves a place where he is honored to go to a place where he is not honored. Why leave a good, flourishing ministry that shows great promise to return the people that you know very well will not give you the kind of reception that you deserve? I would hasten to say that this is something that none of us would ever consider doing. While the Samaritan mission was something of a success, it is frankly impossible to think that Jesus, in two days, would not have been able to make an even greater impact had he stayed longer. But he leaves. Why not stay? If not for himself and for his own honor, then for the rest of the Samaritans who might benefit from that ministry. My guess is, and I think it a very reasonable one, is that he had work to finish that he could not accomplish unless he went where people would reject him. Christ is, was, as it has been said, born to die. This is not some sort of abstract fate that's placed upon his life from outside like he's a small character in a Greek tragedy. But it is a fate that he has placed upon himself. He was born to give his life as a ransom for many. It is a fate that he has taken on willingly as part of the work that was set forward by the Father. After all, in Isaiah, we read that he has bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Although he has done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And certainly part of the will of God was for Jesus to bring the good news of the coming kingdom to dark places without any access to that light, like Samaria. But he had a larger mission, one that encompassed all of the other works that God the Father had given to him. He must be rejected, crushed, afflicted, smitten, stricken, crucified, and die. There is a trial coming for Jesus. And the ending of that trial is one that Jesus is fully aware of. His own people will reject him and they will kill him. So please understand, Jesus doesn't leave the Samaritans. And in doing so, ignore their needs, keep them from coming to the light and in the dark, or leave them without hope. It is only by leaving them that he can ensure that he becomes the savior of the world. It is only by leaving them that he can give to them the salvation that they need. Jesus must be broken in order to give us life. And just as Jesus could not despise the trials that were given to him, we cannot despise the trials that he sets before us. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. These trials are not meant for our harm. But they are meant for our good. And there is grace in the storm. Look at the official in our story today. There's little reason to think that he would have ended up had Jesus not confronted him the way he did, much different from the other Galileans that were present. A a faith that loved signs and wonders, but one that would be unlikely to unite to him strongly in times of sorrow and trial. These Galileans are those who have grown up on thin soil. In the parable of the sower, in Luke we read, The ones on the rock are those when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. There is a welcoming of the word before them, but they have no root. They believe for a little while, and in time of testing, they fall away. But this man is not going to be one of those men. 
Jesus pushes him through the time of testing. This man has no recourse to come to Jesus. And this is testified by the fact that he makes the trip at all. It was his desperation that brought him to Christ, and it is his desperation that yields true faith in Jesus. What precious desperation. What happy trials that would lead us to true and abiding faith in Christ. What beautiful problems we have that expose any false and untrue beliefs that are in us. And what's more, we're not to forget the grace that God gives in the trials. While the man is still walking away, Jesus' words are proven true. He's met by a servant who tell him that his boy is recovered and then report to him even more astonishingly that it is at the exact same time that Jesus said you're well that the son improved, that the son did recover and that the son was alive. He had believed before, but the grace of God given to him through his trial only increases his faith. It deepens his roots into the soil so that he might be able to face even greater trials in the future. Friends, make no doubt, Jesus will give you difficulty and he will give you trouble. And I mean just that. Not your faith won't keep them from you, but Jesus will give them to you. Faith in him will not magically or miraculously make your problems disappear. Even when there is provision, you may have to travel many miles before you hear of the deliverance that Christ has promised you. These trials are not meant to bring about doubt in Jesus' ability to save. They are at times the very things that bring about his salvation in your life. And it is only through difficulty that this man's faith shines. It is only through trial that this man's faith is deepened. Again, in Psalm 119, we read this. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. In this, we stand with Christ, for it is only with Christ's own rejection that salvation is made available to us at all. Our times of trial are meant to bolster our faith as we await salvation and deliverance that Jesus has offered us. Conquer your trials, not by defeating them with sword or money or power or science or miracle, Defeat them with perseverance and faith. Conquer them as Christ conquered them, with the display of trust in the sovereignty of God, even through the darkest of times. Honoring Jesus as Lord does not just mean doing what he says, although that is not a small part of it. It means trusting in his good rulership of the world, trusting him as Lord of Lord and Kings of Kings, as the one who upholds all of creation through the word of his power, trusting him that the things that he gives to you are for your good even in their distastefulness. Doubt is the victory cry of Satan, but persevering relief conquers over all. In the book of Matthew, Jesus speaks about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and scribes, saying, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Friends, there is no one in this room that is above that. We are not above such things. We are not above ignoring the words of Christ, living out a cheap faith, skin deep and paper thin, propped up by man-made ideas about what faith entails and how we are to live it out. Friends, where is your confidence this morning? Where does it lie? 
Are you looking for God's miracles to give you some aid in the most dire of situations? Not knowing that your whole being, every ounce of you, desperately needs the grace of Christ. Not just to be helped in the most difficult of things, but to be helped in the easiest of things. There is no part of you that does not need his grace. Do you only love Jesus because he fills your bellies or your closets or your playlists? Will you wilt and fold when the hot summer rays of trial hit you? Do you have depth of root and faith to sustain you? A love of the sovereignty of Jesus to provide for you? Do you model Jesus' own approach to such trials? Approaching them with an eye toward joy and great deliverance waiting for those who throw themselves upon the mercy of God? Let these questions prick your conscience and your mind and let them bear upon you. Friends, Crush your confidence that you can count on Jesus' words and through them you will conquer all the trials that are put before you. And in doing so, in doing those things, you honor Jesus, who was born for our deliverance, who died for our sins, and was raised for our justification. Therefore, he is worthy of honor. When the lion of the tribe of Judah, the lamb who was slain, had taken the scroll The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Amen and amen. Let us pray. Father, you have said that you will not give your glory to another. So to you alone be the glory. Indeed, we seek to give you that glory here today through the work of your Son by the presence of your Spirit. So let us not be deceived, Father, but give us eyes that can see rightly and ears that can hear truly. Let us be those of true and abiding faith, both for your glory and for our good. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.